Um, <clears throat> let's see, ask a special, um, it's Carol. Carol. Yeah. Ask a special blessing for Carol um, and for those who love her, friends and family, um, for whom her death must have been a real shock. Receive her into your kingdom, forgive her sins. If there is to be a time in purgatory, let our prayers help. We believe that love isn't just confined to our own interests. So when those we don't even know pray for us, those prayers have an efficacy. They, they carry. So let our prayers here help her, forgive her sins, wash them away. Um, and ask for a special blessing on Sue for her care um, and that she be glad that her humor last week was not misplaced at all. Um, if anybody has a sense of humor, you do. And you're aware of inconsistencies and discrepancies everywhere in our lives. Ironies govern our world. We only wish that more of us were open to them. Um, Stay with us through this day. Um, I'm going to offer this reading as a part of our prayer, if you could all just... Um, the reading this morning um, was from Wisdom, and part of the prayers this morning were for the intercession of Albert, who, as some of you would know, I guess, was a man of great learning. And the prayer in the Mass this morning is that, that this love of knowledge, love of learning is so natural to us and sadly for too many people it becomes an end in itself. People want to be smart. You know, they, they want to set themselves apart by showing other people how smart they are. It's not the end of learning. The end of the learning should take us um, closer to God. And so the prayers this morning were that the learning that we do bring us closer to Christ. That as we learn more about the truth about things, we'll find him everywhere. So I want to just read this reading from this morning's Mass and <coughs> close on it. <coughs> this is from Wisdom. All men were by nature foolish, who were in ignorance of God, and who from the good things seen did not succeed in knowing him who is from studying the works did not discern the artisan. How can we look at things and not see the artist behind them? Sorry here for the poet, for the poet behind them. But either fire or wind or the swift air or the circuit of the stars or the mighty water or the luminaries of heaven, the governors of the world, they considered gods. And if out of um, joy in their beauty they thought them gods, let them know how far more excellent is the Lord than these, for the original source of beauty fashioned them. Or if they were struck by their might and energy, <coughs> let them from these things realize how much more powerful is he who made them. For from the greatness and the beauty of created things, their original author, by analogy, is seen. But yet for these the blame is less, for they indeed have, some, have gone astray, perhaps, for they seek God and wish to find him. For they search busily among his works, but are distracted by what they see, because the things seen are fair. But again, not even these are pardonable, 
Or if they so far succeed in knowledge, they could speculate about the world, how did they not more quickly find its Lord? Um, help us heed this caution here. Mortal beauty can be mortal. We can get so caught up. Wealth, prestige, the fact that people need us, um, that we forget. Um, these things are meant to reveal you, draw us closer to you. So strengthen us, please, in our efforts to take a joy in these things, um, <coughs> but to see them as a help to move us along towards you. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I can't remember. You guys have to remind me here. Did I do the Proverbs, the section from Proverbs last week? Okay. Can you pull out the the uh, package, the the, the 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 section on the Psalms? You got it. And if you don't have it, don't worry about it. Doc, you started this up again. Yeah. You've got a packet on the Psalms. <coughs> and if you don't, don't worry about it. Just you can listen. Okay. <coughs> I'm going to start, so if you don't have it, just leave it. You can, you can listen. I wanted to read this passage because it, it speaks so directly to poetry. This is, remember that the Psalms are the, the origins, the prototypes of lyric. Because remember when David wrote this, or David and whatever other psalmist um, included their work in the Psalms, the Psalms were put to a musical instrument. And that musical instrument was called a lyre from which we get lyric. The lyric is meant to be a musical expression of the deepest emotions in the human soul. That's what the lyric is. So it goes into the depths of the person. You know from the things that we've read that very often it's about, it's the expression of a lover for a beloved. But it can, it can be a whole range of things, but generally expresses um, the emotions of the poet for something outside of him. Generally a beloved. If it's Wordsworth, it could be nature. Uh, if it's frost, it could be a pastoral world. But that's the nature of the, of the lyric. <coughs> the narrative, remember, always goes out from the self to another. So the narrative, interestingly, is like the sun. It, it involves a begetting. I want everybody's attention because this is really important. It involves a begetting. So when Jane Austen tells a story, she tells a story about Elizabeth Bennet and Darcy, or when Dickens tells a story about Pip, or Mark Twain tells a story about Huck Finn. <coughs> the poet goes out from himself, he begets another, and he tells the story about that person. Huck Finn, Pip, you know, whoever it is. Okay? So in narrative, the motion of the poet is out. In drama, there's no storyteller there. Not lyric, not narrative. The drama is presented as if there were nobody there, so the story exists independently of anybody. If, if you look closely at this, you'd see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a gift. 
He's always invisible. He's working invisibly to bring something out. So there are these amazing correspondences between the genres and the Trinity. Uh, we've been reading lyrics every class. We usually start. Um, and included in those lyrics are some of the psalms. And if you hear the songs, you'll hear the, the psalmist's love of parallelism and contrast and analogies, parallels. Those are the typical musical forms that he uses. You're probably not aware of them unless you pay close attention, but that's, those are the musical structures that the psalmist uses. The modern psalms, after lyrics, become much more sophisticated, and they, tr they turn away from God, typically. But the psalms are all musical, and they're all devoted to God, all of them. <clears throat> so I'm taking a passage now from Proverbs. It's not one of the psalms, but it reads like a psalm. It has the same musical elements, contrast, analogy, parallel, breaks sentences down into um, similar units so we can hear an order. My reason for choosing this passage is because I think most people read it and don't think about it. I just want to mention this, I'm not going to go back into it afterwards. It seems to me that on the surface, the, 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 the poet, the, sorry, the prophet, is speaking about wisdom. <coughs> but if you look at it closely, you'll see that by wisdom, he can also be referring to the Word. So remember, in eternity, there was the Father, the Son, the Spirit. The Son was the Word. He's called wisdom. He was the means of creation. It was through him that things were made. Okay? Are we all okay? That's sort of commonsensical, yeah? Father, the Son, the Spirit. Sorry, yeah, the Son. The Son is called wisdom, often referred. He's the wisdom of the Father. It was through him creation's made. So keep that in your mind when you hear this book, because what you're going to hear is the Son, or wisdom, playing in the fields of the Lord. God, I love that phrase. Playing in the fields of the Lord. So we almost never get descriptions of the Father before creation. We've got Psalms in which he's described creating. He's like a craftsman dropping his um, weight, anchor weight, and laying the foundations for the sea and the land, you know. So we get those descriptions, but for the most part, everything in, in, in the scriptures is in time. This is one of the rare instances when all the metaphors refer to things in time, streams, mountains, except it's clear that the time reference is to something before time. So what we hear here, what I'm arguing, is an early description of what the sun was doing before creation looking towards creation, the word, poetry. What we just heard is the craftsman in the reading, okay? Wisdom from the reading this morning. Proverbs, it's from 8, verses 22 to 31. And notice the opening line, the verb, the Lord begot me, didn't make me, he was begotten. The Lord begot me, the beginning of his works, the forerunner of his deeds of long ago. From of old I was formed at the first before the earth. When there were no deeps, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains or springs of water, before the mountains were settled into place, before the hills, I was brought forth. This is a description of God conceiving himself, right? Remember, the Son, God conceived of himself, that's the Son. 
The love between them is the spirit. So the poet's describing that moment when the son is being conceived. It's the only passage that I'm aware of in the Bible that does this. Let me start over. The Lord begot me, the beginning of his works, the forerunner of his deeds of long ago. From of old I was formed at the first before the earth. When there were no deeps, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains or springs of water, before the mountains were settled into place, before the hills, I was brought forth. This is wisdom. When the earth and the fields were not yet made, nor the first clods of the world, when he established the heavens, there I was. When he marked out the vault over the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he fixed fast the springs of the deep, when he set for the sea its limit, so that the waters should not transgress his command. When he fixed the fountains of earth, then was I beside him as an artisan. I was his delight day by day, playing before him all the while, playing over the whole of his earth, having my delight with human beings. It's stunning. This is beautiful. He's playing in the fields of the Lord. He's the source of the <coughs> wisdom of it. So... Bob, what was that scripture again? Yeah. It's Proverbs 8, 30, 30, 22, 31. Lots of people think of this as wisdom, and it is, but I mean, if you think about it, you can think of the Son as the wisdom of the Father. Um, I love those lines, playing in the fields of the Lord, in my delight. God, God. We have such a dark view of the world today. I mean, we just... Delight is sort of lost on. We always have to find fault and be negative. Um, okay. A couple things before we begin. Um, one is to let everybody know, I don't know what your expectations are about Anthony Cleopatra. Um, by the way, I don't know if everybody, Tom, Fred and Francis watched the Stratford um, company production of Aunt, uh, Anthony and Cleopatra and just raved about it. And we did too. Yeah, Tom said the same thing. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like a really good production. So I think you all know that plays should be watched, you know, like poems should be read. We want to, because you know, you'll not only hear the music, you'll hear the voices, so our ears are involved. You'll see people and their gestures will speak a lot and the stage movements. So multi-levels of meaning will come into play in a way when we watch a, a production than when we just go into our bedroom and read it. Because remember, in our, in our bedrooms, it's, it's incorporeal. There's no body. It's thought. So 90% of what's incarnated in poetry and a drama, lost. Plays are meant to be watched. And it sounds like this is a really great production. So you just, you all might check it out. That's one. Um, the, other, the other is, this is a setup class. Um, so you might walk away with a lot of questions, which in my mind will be a good thing, but my intent today is not to resolve a lot. I, I want to present as much of the play going into the ending as I can, because the ending to me is extraordinary, and I don't want to give it away but it deserves, it deserves a really close look. Um, um, there, 
I, you know, I think we struggled over Othello, whether Othello was damned and lots of people thought, wished that he would immediately go to hell. You know that those are not my sentiments at all, but in fact, I have a serious question whether Othello doesn't have something of Christ in him in his suffering, you know, his recognition and his grief. And, but at the end of Antony and Cleopatra, we're going to face a similar ending because Antony and Cleopatra are going to take their lives. On the surface, they, they look to be doing what was not uncommon for Romans, because Romans often took their lives. So in one sense, you can argue they're doing the Roman thing. So one of the fundamental questions I've got that I'll repeat at the end of the class today and that we'll take up next week is, is that the way we're to understand what they do? Or is something else happening? If there is, can we make a case for it? We can't just assert something. We cannot. That's been a principle here. If we're going to take a position, we have to do it based on the text. We can't just, because this is what I believe, you know, you can't hold that position. You've got to be able to back it up. So there's a lot going on at the end that's, that's important. So I, I don't want to get there today. I'm going to try to do everything I can to just get the play out, and it may make for a short class. I know you all will be sorry if that's the case. But, um, so that's one. The other is, um, <clears throat> I'm glad David's here this, um, um, this morning. At the end of the last evening class, um, a week ago, David came up after the class because I think we'd started the apophatic and I asked, what, what were the words being spoken before Anthony and Cleopatra come on stage? And I talked about the apophatic, that, that Shakespeare's dealing with the, making real the apophatic in a drama in a way that I'm not aware that he does in any other play. I'm, I'm not even aware of another work of literature, few. I have to really press my mind to come up with something. But he's preoccupied with absences, privations, gaps. I'll mention a couple of day. Um, he knows that Antony and Cleopatra, um, that last battle, which they were defeated and then led them to take their lives, brought to a close, in name, the civil wars in Rome. It's going to be a big thing. I'll come back to it in a minute. Brought to a close the civil wars. And, it, and, it, and it, um, it, it introduced what became known in history as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which lasted for a couple of centuries. And that's partly a fiction because wars continue to go on with the Germanic tribes of the north, and, but not on a scale that they'd gone on before. So historians tend to look at that, piece as a, that period as a, as a period of relative peace. It's called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. After Caesar, um, five, what's called the five great emperors followed. And, um, and it was after that fifth one that Rome went to hell. So there's a, a f it's not just nominal, there's a fundamental difference between Rome during the Pax Romana in which this relative peace was enjoyed. It should be opened on. No, it's not. No, I opened it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't work. It doesn't I work. came in it. I mean, it may not work now, but I... Is it? <coughs> locked again? I, anyway, it did. I opened it um, from the outside to test it. You came in. Um, the, uh, the, the five emperors succeeded each other and kept Rome in relative peace. 
The last of those emperors was Marcus Aurelius. I don't know if any of you have seen The Gladiator, which I love. Yeah. It's a great movie. He's that emperor. Russell Crowe. Yeah. And it's, if you remember the movie, remember when the woman comes out and says, um, it used to be that a man was a man in Rome, that each man was, I don't remember her words, but what she was saying is, each man is valued for himself because once the, the, fall, the bad emperors took over, they took on imperial powers, controlled everything. The whole point of the Republic was to value, eat, to, to live in the world understanding <coughs> that each man had a worth in himself. That was the Republic. We get that America Republic, the Republic of America, its roots are Rome in that respect. That's where we get it. So when um, Scott Ridley, I think he was the one, did that film, he was obviously thinking about America. I couldn't watch the film without it. He, he had America on his mind everywhere in it. <clears throat> um, I, I'm sorry, don't have her words, but what she's saying is we used to believe in a Rome in which one, a man was a man. And with indignation and anger, because the hero, the gladiators, just died, she said, can we believe in that again? And she says, lift him up and give him a proper burial. And she said, who will help me lift him up? Yeah, yeah, good. I think what she said was, is Rome worth the death, death of, of one, one man. man. Yeah. That they so believed in a Republican <clears throat> freedom. So all the civil wars were fought for that. And here's what's important about Shakespeare. Shakespeare, Catholic. Shakespeare knew Greece. <clears throat> Timon, Midsummer Night's Dream, which we read, and, um, and Midsummer Night's Dream. What am I missing? Timon of Athens. Oh, um, Troilus and Cressida. He did three plays on Greece. The three play, major plays they did on Rome are Coriolanus, Julius Caesar, and Anthony Cleopatra. Coriolanus is the one who marks the beginning of the Republic. Beginning of the Republic. Julius Caesar marks the threat to its end because you know that Caesar was assassinated because he was claiming to have divine powers. If he was given divine powers, that would have destroyed the Republic. So Cassius and Brutus assassinated him. Caesar and Anthony went after him. So our play picks up just after Anthony and Caesar defeat Brutus and Cassius for killing Caesar. So Rome, even though it's a republic, it's been fraught with civil wars. I'll come back to that in a minute. But it's Coriolanus, Julius Caesar, Anthony and Cleopatra. And he know, he, he's Christian. He's, it's in a modern world when Christianity is being lost. He knows that. He knows that Anthony and Cleopatra takes place just before Christ came. Okay? So here's my question to you looking forward to next week. Because it's all going to be a setup. Um, is he doing something that makes us aware in the way that he treats Anthony and Cleopatra that God was at work in a way that the Romans could never have seen? Is that clear? Is he doing something with the play that's absolutely faithful to the way a Roman would report it? It's absolutely faithful to all the facts as they played out in Roman history. He's absolutely faithful. So on the surface, it looks like a Roman history. Okay? Is he doing something in the way that he manages it that a Roman could not do that suggests something else is going on? He's doing, he's doing what I've called the apophatic, this, you know, the, this way of negation, 
It's the mystical tradition. There are two traditions, the way of affirmation of images. We know things by the things that are known. The way of negation is we know things by taking all those things away. We enter the dark night of the soul. Shakespeare's dealing with all these absences, withdrawals. So what's he doing? Is this just Roman history? Or is he helping us to see something happening then that the Romans and historians even couldn't see? I'm going to give you a, all a quiz on it when we meet next week. One day I'm going to surprise you, you and do it. looking at me. <laughs> and you'll notice, you'll notice the paper will be empty. <laughs> and we won't be there next week. The two of you had to sit in the back of the class when you were in high school. That's right. <laughs> making trouble all the time. I, I signed the coach's family. Good times. <laughs> Only? Only. <laughs> Only? Robert? Yeah. Two things. Did you announce that we will meet next week, but we won't meet the following week? No, but did everybody get the announcement? <laughs> <laughs> There's an echo. Thanks for <laughs> no, it's not an echo. It's, um, so we're meeting next week. We'll finish it. Next week we'll finish Anthony Cleopatra, and we're going to start Scarlet Letter. Because it, it, I don't think it'll take the whole time. I, I want to just look at the end. Or at least I, I'm going into that, that with that plan. Um, we'll finish up Anthony and Cleopatra, and if we get through early enough, I just want to set out some introductory thoughts on Scarlet Letter. So. And would you put the word apophatic up on the board? I will in a minute. Thank you. Would you behave just for... There, it's there. Um, Is it there? Yes. Thank you, Bev. <laughs> and we all know, was it just me? No, but no, would you... Yes, no, will. quiet. God, <laughs> you are. Um, last thing, last thing. David raised this question, um, and it, it won't fit in, but it was, such a, um, it was such a probing question that I want to take a minute. So we had just done the introductory stuff on the apophatic, and I was probably saying some of these things that Shakespeare is a Catholic, he's, he's a Christian. Um, this is just before the time Christ came. He came up after class and he said, I'm doing justice to yours, why, why did Christ come into the world then? I mean, it was really puzzling over it because it, to me it's a really good question, particularly if Shakespeare's seen in Anthony and Cleopatra that something's happening, you know. Why did Christ come into the world then? And I just want to offer a couple of thoughts because I thought it was a really good question. A couple of things are happening then um, that, that aren't happening anywhere else in the world, anywhere else in the world. <clears throat> and it, that's really important. One of them is that the census is going to be taken after Anthony and Cleopatra defeated and Caesar Augustus rules. The Pax Romana begins. Rome looks at itself as the ruler, the conqueror of the world, that it brings peace internationally. That's why I gave you that map so you could see the extent of its rule. It had, it had control in in almost every continent, in some respect, even if it didn't rule the whole continent, it was there, almost, okay? So its, um, its territories were vast, um, and its power was vast and, and thought to be universal. Those of you have, who have read the, the um, Aeneid with me, you know that the whole point of what Aeneas is doing is, is to found the universal city, Rome. 
It was to be the city in which all men could come together, because up until that time, cities were tribal, belonged to certain people. So peoples in all the continents were always at war. Remember when Aeneas goes to Italy, Italy's being torn apart by tribal wars, dynastic wars. So the, the, the character of the ancient world was basically um, dynastic. You remember through, in, over the course of our time, I've given you that paradigm from Aristotle when Aristotle said the two extremes of political regimes are tribe and empire. Those are the two extremes. The polis was important because it was a mean between two extremes. In empire, the individual doesn't come into existence. When, when descriptions are made of the building of the pyramids or the China Wall, do you ever hear an individual named? Never will, because individuals were expendable. They were slaves. They built, were replaced, when they died, were replaced by others. Because the dynastic um, <coughs> families had control, and they were looked at as semi-god, semi-divine. Individuals were nothing. They didn't belong to the ruling family. The tribes, on the other hand, um, do recognize individuals, but they're tied too closely to the bloodline. So the bloodline becomes a means for tribal wars, constantly. They tear each other apart. And in tribes, people live at a, at a level of necessity. They just do what they have to do to survive. Move when winter comes, you know, and the herds thin out, things like that. The polis, Aristotle, and remember how important the mean is for him. Everywhere in our life, we're supposed to be struggling for that mean. Everywhere. In politics, our personal lives. It was only in the polis that the individual could perfect himself. Because the end of the polis was the perfection of the, of the, of the individual, the human person. There was an implied understanding that, that each human being had this innate dignity. He got that from Homer in the Iliad. There's this innate de dignity that human beings have. It's only in the polis that it can be fulfilled. Because either the other extremes doesn't recognize what has to happen to go on. It's only in the polis when people get together um, that that happens. And for Aristotle, the, the key point in the development of the polis was that moment when um, work became diversified. What's the word I'm mean, when? the diversification of labor, the division of, the division of labor. Because remember, before that time, you've got a, a guy spending all his time building roofs or houses or, or making, he was doing everything to survive. But once, once that point of a division of labor occurs, a guy who's building houses can make an arrangement with a guy who makes shoes. And they, money comes into the picture and it becomes a form of commuting time and labor and value. So once that happens, each person doesn't have to do everything. And freedom enters into his life. Now the reason that's so crucial for Aristotle is that once a man has freedom, he can begin to philosophize. Can people in tribes, can people in the dynasties, the empires, um, do they ever have the freedom that's necessary in order to learn? No. So it's only in the polis that a measure of freedom comes into a person's life and he can begin to read and the end for them was to philosophize, to think about the beginnings of things, the ends of things, to look at the ultimate questions, those sorts of things, okay? Um, so 
Rome was the, it was the image of fulfilling all of that. The worth of each individual, the freedom of each individual, and it was universal. If you go back to the Aeneid, it was the one city in which people from all tribes, all walks of life could come. Would that be true in the empires? No. Too dynastic. In tribes? No. So Rome was a special city. When um, Antony and Cleopatra were killed, when they took their lives, Caesar becomes Augustus Caesar, the Pax Romana begins, and Rome has relative peace for several centuries. It's during that time that the census is made and the census is thought to be international, worldly. Christ comes in t t to time <clears throat> during that census. You know that biblically. We get that biblically that people are moving when he comes into the world. They have to take a census. So the early church fathers, this, I mean, th we, this is not a certain knowledge. I'm offering it on the trust that you all, you all know that this is putting things together. Um, all the early church fathers saw this more moment as important because it, it just was another way of signifying that Christ came in to save us all. He came under the census. Um, he became one with us all. Um, that's one reason. Another is that um, if you know anything about philosophy, and some of you have some sense of it now, Plato and Aristotle have both written, and both of them understand that nothing in the world can be explained on its own terms without reference to an ultimate source. For Plato, it's what he called the good. For Aristotle, it's the unmoved mover. Let me just give you quickly an argument from Aristotle. We know that we can't explain anything that goes on in the world because we look at it as a contingency. If it rained today, it's because clouds did this and the waters did this, or if I drop a glass and it broke, you know, it's because of the laws of all those things. That everything in nature has a contingent character. It's based on something else. To explain the cause of one thing, we have to go to something beyond that. To explain the cause of that, we have to go beyond. But in that sense, none of them will fully explain. It's only when we get to something that is uncaused, that puts everything else into motion, do we get the ultimate explanation for things? Because everything else is contingent. So whatever that thing was, it had to be non-contingent, non-created. It was sufficient in itself. Aristotle called that the unmoved mover. We call that God. He's uncreated. Nobody created him. He is being itself. Okay. Both of those philosophers developed this thinking that help bring together the physical world with the metaphysical. It's extraordinary. If you read all their writing, you put it together, you're, you, I mean, you really are amazed. Hegel cannot do that. Marx doesn't do it. Heidegger doesn't do it. All the modern thinkers have gaps between this world and another, between in and out. They just can't do it, never did. Plain Aristotle did. When does Christ come into the world? Just shortly after. It's like the mind was being developed to prepare for the thing itself. And then add to that scripture, because you know that the whole Old Testament, the whole of tradition was waiting for this Messiah, this man to come into the world. The great irony is that he came into the world and so many Jews um, didn't recognize him as such because they kept thinking whoever the Messiah was, they, he would deliver them from all the disorders and rules by other people, that they would finally take their place as a world power. And in, into the world comes this guy who's riding a donkey, born in a manger. 
Um, and that fits in so many ways of what's going to go on here. Because in Anthony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare is absolutely faithful to the political events as they occur. And what we're watching is Caesar almost never fails. He keeps winning again and again and again and again and again. And so he seems to conduct a rising action. He never fails. He's an image of power in the world at work. But the question that I want to raise when we do this, is there something else going on that doesn't quite fit this thing? That's just a question. But anyway, those, those were three things going on. They weren't going on in China. China didn't have the philosophy. They had no notion of the city the way we do. You know the city's been important in almost every play we've read because it's a paradigm for us. It, it's the place in which man attains his completeness. Does it exist in China, Egypt, Africa? You can go anywhere else in the world and you'll find another kind of regime where the individual doesn't emerge. This extraordinary nobility or dignity man has. Our image of ourselves today, I, I've asked you this question, are our beginnings high or low? And you know the answer to that, our beginnings are low. We have this awful picture of ourselves today that's not completely Christian. You know. So all of these things were happening um, and Shakespeare's doing something in, in an interesting way in Anthony and Cleopatra. I don't, I don't, he's doing something, so I want to look, I want to ask you guys, what's he doing? Because the purpose of the class was, can we find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him? And I asked the question last week, what was God doing before Christ came? I love that question. I'm really proud of myself for that. I really do, I love that question. What was God doing before Christ came? What was God doing? Was he not around? Is Shakespeare showing us that something was going on that ordinarily, that ordinarily people don't see and that the poet does? If it is, what is it? Let me leave it there. David, did I answer that? Did I answer? Well, you answered it with a question. <laughs> That's not an answer. But, but That's I, all I you're getting. I understand what you're saying, though. Yeah. That, that is true. Yeah. It just I was asked looking for something that was tick and tied and you know, but it never will be with Christ. No, but if you look at it, it's a lot. You know, I mean, it, who can be definitive about that? But it's it's hard to deny whatever you want to call it the plausibility or the you know the amazing coincidences of these things. Put a lot of coincidences together, and you have to say, was it really coincidence? You know, there's something strange going on here. Okay, so with that background, let's go to the play. Let's see if we have any questions. Bob, would you say that the city is an evolved form of the tribe? Or is it too different to, to use no, that analogy? No, I, it's another good question. Um, my answer to that would be yes, but it would be a qualified yes. It's that Aristotle saw that there was a telos, an end to everything. So that the bloom that a flower finally attains is already inherent in the stem, you know, before you see the bloom. So in the same sense, the tribe implies um, the city. Aristotle would say, I think correctly, that the city has a nature 
And sorry, I don't see any matches in your contacts. <laughs> what? I didn't touch the mine. I didn't touch mine either. <laughs> <laughs> At least they didn't just say turn it off. <laughs> Here, it doesn't matter, can we? The, the, he would say the city, like the individual. Here, let me put it differently. The in, man has a nature. We were meant to complete ourselves. To, to, in, in Christian terms, we were meant ultimately to become an image of God. So when Christ says, in me you see the Father, Sorry, you know. There's nothing to repeat. <laughs> I'm trying to turn it off. So... Everything in nature, everything in nature has a nature. It has an end. That's true of man, and it becomes clear when you look at our circumstances that neither the tribe nor the um, the empire can help man to achieve that end. They will always do something to undercut it. Um, but but you can look at the tribe as having an end. And if you want to use the word evolving, I mean, moving in that direction, that cities at some point had to come into existence. Um, and we all know, I mean, you know, at least from our reading, that typically the city's the place of corruption. It's where everything bad goes on. It's supposed to be that place where all of us get better, but it's, it's a place of trial, for sure. Is it, a, is it an evolution of the tribe, because it has different characteristics, or is it a corruption of the polis? What uh, I was thinking about that. The corruption of the what? Polis. I, listen, I, I don't want to... I, I would say it's not a black-white. That there are... You, we know that cities prosper. That there can be really good cities. When crime goes... We're we're, on this earth, we're never going to have a city that's free of crime. Ever. Yeah. Ever. If the police force is undermined, we're in trouble. Take the police force out and crime's going to grow. So we always need prisons, we always need graveyards. It's a place of mortality. We're all in sin, we're not gonna escape it. But we all know that we can have better communities. We can do better things in our families. Lots of families really struggle. I think, particularly in our age, I think the modern age is so contrary to the city and the family, both. It's, it's not a surprise to me, I can't remember the Pope, a couple of decades ago, I think, um, had a culture of death. You call the modern culture. I believe he's right on, absolutely right on. Um, that there's so much going on in our world that's so <clears throat> uncongenial to the nature of man. As a matter of fact, one of the defining qualities of us in the modern world is man has no nature. Take that away. What I mean, then what? If you know, if you want to be a woman, make yourself a woman. If you're a man, I mean, you can you can make yourself what you want. The, the modern man has no sense that there's a nature to things to fulfill. For him, that's an, an archaism. It, it's an anachronism. He, so the modern city, I think, just because of the philosophies in our world, um, just have a hard time you know, growing into what Aristotle th hoped would be. They, Aristotle knew the bad. Plato knew the bad. They, they were aware. They were all, remember, Socrates got killed. They knew corruption. It didn't, wasn't. It non-existent then. It existed then as much as it does now. But let's let's start. Um, I want to just I want to set things out. Um, 
so that we're ready to look at the ending. Um, we've seen a number of things in poetry that should reinforce our, our understanding that poetry can give us something other fields cannot. Um, and I suggested two in, in recent plays. Remember in Othello, Othello said, I'm rude of speech. I don't know if everybody's here during that time, but I read through his passages where he declares his love to Desdemona. And they're among the most extraordinary expressions of love in all of Shakespeare. Um, and it comes from a man who says to himself, I'm rude of speech. We know he's from Africa, Moorish Africa. He's uneducated. He's a soldier. He spent his life fighting. He doesn't know anything about the intellect. He, he enters this Venetian world. It's the prototype of the modern liberal democracy. People are educated. They're resourceful. He's going to meet Iago, and Iago's going to destroy him. He's a soldier. He has no sense of the dangers of the mind. But so for him to say, I'm rude of speech, means either Shakespeare's window dressing, he's you know, dressing everything up, um, or what my belief, I think, as you know, Shakespeare's giving words to him that are poetic because they're, they're the only way to express what's at the depth of his soul that he himself could never get to. And I'm assuming that we all know that, that every one of us, and I, particularly in romantic love, every one of us has felt something for another that we couldn't find words to express. We were always left feeling whatever we said, it wouldn't have been enough. We know that there are greater depths there. So poetry can help bring us in touch with those depths that an articulated language can't. There's an order of beauty, a dignity. It's his way of showing those qualities in the depths of this man's soul, even if he couldn't completely understand them or express them. So the poetry takes us to depths in that sense. Okay? We also read that passage in All's Well That Ends Well when Helena goes to the king to offer her services. And you remember, she, he refuses. He, he will be embarrassed. He's had, oh God, he's had all the modern medicine, uh, the doctors who've been educated with the modern sciences do all that they could, and they couldn't heal him. He doesn't want to be embarrassed by having this woman come in and fail again. She offers her life. In Helena, we've seen, a, and it's really interesting to me. I was talking with Suzanne about it, even in the Seton class, because we're doing it there. How many images do we have today of a woman willing to love her husband completely at the, at the expense of everything? We don't have that today. The, the tradition before that time, remember, was the chivalric, the um, courtly love tradition, in which the man declared his love for a woman. How many images do we have today of women who are willing to give their lives completely for the man they say they love? The images are all of women wanting things. Diamonds, houses, cars. If anything gets in the way, they get rid of it. Abortion. It's out. Cost so we live in a culture in which women are encouraged to have a lot and even do something that, in our belief, is not good, to put away a child. How often, where, point to an image in anything going on in American culture that shows a woman who's willing to give her love for a man completely. And that's what Helen does. In that one scene where she's talking with the king, um, he doesn't want to be embarrassed. He says, what will you risk? And she risks her life. And she repeatedly makes it clear that it's her faith in heaven 
So she's not arrogant, she's not self-serving. We know that because three men are going to offer themselves and she's not going to choose any of them. She loves, she loves Bertram. During that scene, when the king and Helena are talking and she's offering himself, it slips into rhyme. We read it together, I'm sure. It slips into rhyme. Um, and we've done Chaucer here. Why does Chaucer use rhyme? We went over this, it's just amazing to me. Remember, you can't read a story of Chaucer that isn't in, usually, that it's, it's royal couplets, A, A, B, B, and couplets rhyming. Occasionally it'll slip into a, a, um, a stanza form, but consistently it's royal couplets. And I remember reading, the, um, remember the description of Arceta's death when all the characters were <coughs> grieving and crying and wailing and they were, and you can read it it's silently at home and not hear the rhyming, and you'll be aware of the grief, but you'll miss the comic aspect. I read it so you'd hear it, because when you, Chaucer's describing the grief, the women are all wailing, and you hear these rhymes, it's almost parodic, it's almost comic. You know? um, why? Because for Chaucer, who's a great reader of Boethius, um, order and beauty are never not there. Remember Chaucer, um, Boethius' conclusion? There is never any bad fortune. It, we, we think it's bad because we don't see. That was his argument. God is never not at work bringing goodness out of evil. How strong is our faith? Do we see that or not? Or are we given to the critical modern mind, finding fault, seeing darkness? Do we really believe that God is there? Does it show in the way we live <clears> our lives? So you couldn't read Chaucer except in rhyming. And, and most teachers of the gay, they'll just say, royal couplets, and leave it at that, like it's a technical embellishment, like it's just an embellishment. It's not. And I gave, tried to give the example. You know, if you walked out in the backyard and you saw beauty in a bee, beauty in a leaf, beauty in a bird, beauty in a flower, beauty in the woman who walked through the door or the man, I mean, this was our reading this morning. There's beauty and order everywhere. Do we see the source of it? How many of us look out and see the beauty that is a part of everything we see and thank God? It just doesn't happen. We still take it for granted. So when Shakespeare renders that scene, the two slip into rhyme. And I remember asking the question, why? Because they've entered a holy space. She's offering her life, his life's at risk. And remember the lines afterwards in Act 2, Scene 2, the opening lines from, from Lefeu, people no longer believe in miracles. And the reason he says that is because a miracle has just been performed. That nobody could do that, Helena had done it. So very quietly, in an understated way, a miracle takes place. Um, we're aware of it. And, and in the scene leading up to the miracle, we're not shown it, it takes place in rhyme. Shakespeare slips into that. I think it's because it's kind of like a liturgical or a holy space. There's an order and a beauty that goes deeper than the surface. Something's happening. Okay? So poetry helps us to see and feel things other things can't. Literature can help take us to these places that because um, remember, they're always, they're, they, they're, in literature, we're not in abstractions in our head. We're returned to the world. 
We go back to the concrete world. We re-experience it. So we can, we can re actually really experience love, beauty, God in some way. Okay. Um, I've been saying from the beginning, we don't read well. We constantly misread. Um, we're at Anthony and Cleopatra. You can take Othello. How many people, how many people saw Iago for who he was? How well were they reading evil? Nobody. Absolutely nobody. Um, we misread all the time. We think we have, the more educated we are, the more likely we are to think we're smart. Um, and particularly in our world. Get a, get a degree in, uh, in what, would, what were you reading last night? That wasn't on Bloom. What were you reading about education? Oh, your, your God Prager? Yeah. Can you want to just say it, Doc? But, no. No? The, this radio guy that I listened to, who um, was very educated, <laughs> said that parents who send their kids to college are, tending, are sending them to learn to be stupid. And that if they get a PhD, if they go on to get a PhD, they're going to come out as first class fools. Come out as what? First, first class, class fools. fools. Oh. <coughs> this is why she's, we're in bed lying with <coughs> each other and she's married to a PhD. Was that Prager? Yes. Yes, Prager University. He's really good. She listens to him all the time. Oh, and she's. Tragedy, just very quickly, because remember we went over it with um, Othello, we're going to have to go over it here again. I'm not going to go into it in any depth, but you remember, central to a tragic action is a moment of recognition. Tragedy doesn't mean bad things happen. It means bad things happen, but they're always, they always involve a, a clearing up, a cleaning up. Some evil is answered that restores an order. So the, the action of tragedy always takes the course of going from good fortune to bad, but in a way that always prepares the ground for a refounding. The injustice, the evil has been answered, it's out of the way. So an order has been, an old order has been purged. So there's a restoration, there's a recovery of balance. It's as if there's, no it's not, there's a logos in nature, there's a rationality to nature and the tragic action brings us back to it. So we're back on solid ground in every tragedy. And I've, I've suggested, if, if that isn't clear to you, cut the tragedy off three quarters of the way through it, or the comedy, just cut it. Or you'll, you'll be left with a feeling of incompleteness and frustration. Every tragic action, every comic action, brings us to a point of closure, of fulfillment or even sadness. But in the case of the sadness of tragedy, we always recover a balance, a ground. We see things. Oedipus Rex saw that he was the cause of bad things. He blinds himself. He gouges out his eyes. I think anybody who reads that play sensibly has got to say, at the end of that play, he's an extraordinarily beautiful man. He sees far more than than he, he sees far more than than any anybody in the play. And in some sense, we have to say that of Othello. Othello. Othello sees. He sees the depths of his horror. How many people do that? We've got confession. We're supposed to be doing that regularly. We're supposed to go and acknowledge our, acknowledge our wrongs. So every tragic action moves towards a completion that depends on this moment, a moment of recognition. 
When you're reading Anthony and Cleopatra, do Anthony and Cleopatra have a moment of recognition? Do they, do they fulfill the tragic paradigm? Do they see something that they didn't see before that changes who they are at the end? And if they do change, how do we describe that change? Okay, is it purely in Roman terms? Or is it something else? The major themes of Anthony and Cleopatra are city and love. In, in almost every play we've seen, the, the city is antagonistic love. Midsummer Night's Dream, the lovers were sent out of the city. Um, um, the, the city is a threat to love. When people get involved in the city, they become proud and arrogant and self-serving and envious and um, bad things happen to them. Bad things happen to love. Love isn't fulfilled. Um, both, um, the play is very much about differences between man and woman. Rome is very masculine. Um, what we see going on in Rome are men who live in structures in their heads. They're structures, contracts, strategies. Um, it's the masculine mind. Um, they're constantly, constantly trying to answer old injustices. Um, and what we, what we learn in the play is with all their efforts to try to control the injustices, they never can. Um, um, Caesar, at one point, looks ahead and says, a universal peace is near at hand. <coughs> if I were to describe the modus operandi of Rome, it would be, it's the belief, this is so important, it's the belief that through power, contingencies, fortune, can be conquered. Keep Boethius in your mind. The Roman attitude is through conquering, male, male power, male strength, <coughs> they can overcome contingencies and attain a peace. They can finally resolve all the injustices that have been plaguing Rome's history forever. So the Pax Romana is not a small thing. It's an indication they've done that. Is that clear? Cleopatra says of Caesar, he is fortune's slave. Because the assumption in the Roman mind is that with male power, they can overcome fortune, contingencies. They can finally attain a peace. So we're going to have to talk about that irony. When, when Anthony and Cleopatra kill themselves and the Pax Romana begun, begins, is it really peace? How do we look at that ending? Um, Egypt is feminine. Caesar has on his mind a justice for everybody. Rome will be the universal city. Egypt is feminine. Um, it, um, Cleopatra does everything she can for herself. I mean, you remember those scenes where she's doing everything she can to manipulate Anthony. When, when she gets the news that Fulvia's dead and Anthony's returning, she disappears and says, tell him I'm grieving. If he's happy, tell him I'm sad. If he's sad, tell him I'm happy. She wants to do everything she can to be contrary to him. And Charmian says, what a way to lose him. She says, you fool. Um, that would be the way to lose him. She's going to do everything she can to be contrary to him. So um, she does everything she can to get her way. Both Caesar and Cleopatra are despots. They're autocratic. They're, they, they exercise absolute power. When the slave gives Cleopatra news that she doesn't like, she whips him and threatens to kill him. Um, 
What's it, one of the differences between the two in terms of masculine and feminine is Rome is masculine in the sense in which I said it a minute ago. They live in structures of the mind. If we do this, this. In Egypt, they live in immediate pleasures of the body. The body's not taken for granted. In Rome, it is because they have to kill people and destroy the body in order to succeed. So in some ways, the two cities, the two regimes seem antithetic to each other. And once Anthony's there, um, it's hard for him to leave. So as in all the other plays, you know, every play we've looked at it had two regimes. Um, in Midsummer Night's Dream, you had Athens in the forest. Measure for Measure, you had Venice and Belmont. In Othello, you had Venice and Cyprus. Here you've got um, Roman Egypt, but you've also got the antithesis between men and women. And so one of the one of the things we have to ask is, I'm trying to do everything I can not to give things away. Anthony's very masculine. Everybody knows he's the best soldier in the world. Nobody could defeat him. Caesar knows that. Anthony, when they go to war at the end, Anthony challenges Caesar to single combat. Caesar won't do it because he knows he'll, he'll lose. Caesar's a prudent man. Anthony's the greatest soldier, the most manly soldier. Cleopatra is the most feminine, voluptuous, sex, sexy woman you know, in the world at that time. So he's doing everything he can to strengthen the antithesis. How do we understand the two in terms, of, in terms of their sexuality at the end, male, female? What does he do? I don't want to give it away. But be, be, be very aware of terms that have to do with their masculinity and femininity. Um, um, and I've already mentioned the apophatic. Let me just let me, let me quickly go over a couple of things, and I just want to look at some passages and, and let everybody go. Um, it's going to be interesting. Um, what do we? How do we look at ourselves as men and women? Um, we're we're biologically different. Our ends are different. Women have wombs. They grow up with periods. They have wombs. Men don't. Um, so there are biological differences. How do they play out in the psychology, the, the way men and women are? Um, here are some of the quarrels that characterize Rome. Um, we know that a civil war was just concluded before the play openings because Antony and Caesar defeated uh, Brutus and Cassius, who killed Caesar. Um, so, uh, and there were wars involving Pompey. Pompey's father was killed. So Rome has struggled with civil wars forever, forever. When the play opens, they, we learn that Fulvia and, uh, had gone to war with Caesar and Anthony's brother. That Fulvia had um, allied <coughs> made up the quarrel with Anthony's brother, and then they made war against Caesar. We know that Pompey is raising an army that he's taking over Sicily, so he poses a threat to Caesar. Those, if you look at the action of the play, it's, it starts with um, 
relative ease, but immediately, this, by the way, this is the, this is the stage form of a play. Opening problem, complication, crisis, denouement, resolution. Every play takes that form. Opening problem, complication, um, crisis, denouement, resolution. Interesting, this may not mean as much to you as it does to me. Every single question of St. Thomas, every single question takes the same form. Opening question, a complication, it seems to be this way, um, an answer to it, crisis, and then the denouement, he applies the answer to every one of the problems. So your mind is brought to rest. Opening question raises all these things. It teaches you to question things. Then you have to look at them all, and he says, no, they're not the way. This is the way it is. He gives an answer, but in itself it's not enough, because until you learn to apply that answer to all those questions, you won't really have understanding. Your mind won't come to rest. That's St. Thomas. So this drama is intrinsic to us. We're meant to learn, we're meant to ask questions, we're meant to come to light, but real wisdom comes when we're able to take a principle and apply it to different cases. That's the action. The complication takes place here when Fulvia dies and um, news comes to Caesar that Pompey has taken Sicily. So Anthony has to go home. And you know that when he goes home, he and Caesar almost fight. They are so, they, they both feel betrayed by each other. The answer to that problem is um, Anthony marrying uh, Octavia, um, Caesar's sister. The hope is that um, by marrying her, it'll ease tensions between the two and hold them to a bargain. There's the contract. And we know as soon as, as, soon as um, Anthony and Cleopatra get to go home, they learn that Caesar and Lepidus wage war against Pompey. Remember, the, you all know the triumvirate. It's Caesar, Anthony, and Lepidus. Those are the triumvirs. They're the three rulers of Rome. Um, things seem patched up when Anthony marries Octavia, they go home. They get home and they learn that Caesar and Lepidus wage war against Pompey, who is trying to take vengeance for his father's death, is trying to answer the faults of the past. Plague Rome forever. The two of them defeat Pompey as soon as they, um, as soon as they defeat him. Caesar concocts this, um, this plot against him. He trumps up all these charges against um, Lepidus and defeats him. <coughs> So Lepidus is out of the picture now, and now Caesar rules alone except for Anthony. When that happens, Anthony sends Octavia home because he knows he and Caesar are going to go to war. So for all of Rome's efforts to try to answer the injustices, the resentments, the grudgments, the, the, grudge, the wounds from the past, he can't. And it's interesting to me because from the beginning of this class, we've been talking about how people constantly allow the past to keep having too great an importance in the present, that it's so hard to let go of wounds, resentments, grudges, hurts. The play is plagued with them. So two-thirds of the way through the play, Anthony and Caesar are going to go to war. That's the plot. And even in the third act, the opening of the third act, is a reminder that um, for all 
the efforts to make a treaty, because just before that, the three men, Caesar, Lepidus, and Anthony, make that treaty with each other, with Pompey. Pompey's there. Um, even though that treaty is made, um, Act Three opens with the news that one of the generals defeated the Parthians and avenged Pompey's, Pompey's death. No, cr sorry, Crassius' death. Because one of the Parthians betrayed <coughs> Crassius earlier. So the vengeance through the play never stops. Okay? Now that's the political, that's the political reality. A, a, couple of, a couple of things to be aware of. When all the men meet on that boat, Caesar, Anthony, Lepidus, and Pompey, they meet in order to try to avoid a war between them. Because the tr three Roman travelers want to go to war with Pompey because he's a threat. They agree, um, they make a settlement that Pompey can have Sicilia and some other lands and control of the sea if he gets rid of pirates. And what they do is make a contract. And everything seems okay. In that scene, if you remember, one of Pompey's lieutenants, Minas, comes to him and says, do you want to rule the world? Pompey has no idea what he's talking about. He says, do you want to rule the world? Are you all, do you all remember? Do I need to go through lines? Yeah. He says again, do you want to rule the world? Pompey is confused and said, I have no idea. He said, give me the word and I'll go kill them because they're all present. Now just stop and think about that. Um, because Caesar's trying to conquer fortune, thinks he can. That's, that's why women are disdain, because they don't have the physical power that men have. Warm Rome bases itself on male strength, power, for overcoming things. Minas says, I'll kill them. In that moment, he could have killed Caesar, Lepidus, and Anthony, and taken control. Does Caesar have any clue of the good fortune that he just had. He doesn't even know it. Minas could have killed him. Pompey's answer, if you had done it, it would have been okay. I would have said nothing, I would have been proud of you. But now that you've told me, I can't because as a man of honor, a man of honor, so Roman, as a man of honor, I can't do that. Shortly after this, Lepidus and Caesar are gonna go after him and defeat him. Pompey's gone. So we're watching a world of machinations that never stop. Is it any different from our world? Go anywhere in our world today. Is there any, is there any nation, and take a look at America, because we're modern Rome. We really are modern Rome. North Korea, China, Afghanistan, Syria, Iran. In what way are we different from Rome in dealing with foreign affairs and power struggles and threats and... So are so, you saying that History repeats itself, but with different players. Okay. <laughs> and, and different circumstances, that, so that ask of us, if we, if we bring to it a black-white mentality, we're dead. It's one of the arguments I tried to make when we were doing um, Merchant of Venice. You know, where did Portia get her wisdom? The, the, the other purpose for this class is to recover a tradition. Because without a tradition, we tend to see things in black and white ways. With the tradition, we're much more multi, we're, we can nuance, we can see the subtleties of things. Take away that tradition, no matter how educated you are, you're gonna be in a black-white mindset. So history, I mean, we can't escape our fall is another way of putting it, David, it's always there. How good are we, are we relating to different circumstances? I mean, that's, you know, it's always a trial for all of us. 
But you see the point here, because Shakespeare would have known that. He knew history better than we do. He would have known the Parthian, the Babylonian, the Rome, all of it. What he presents is um, an, an intrigue, international, involving all countries. That's, it's really like America in that sense, because Rome has that kind of power. And what we're watching within Rome are all these intrigues, civil wars, betrayals. Okay. Now, two things to think about before we stop here. Um, right from the beginning, um, we get hints of withdrawals. Um, so, this is going to be a crucial question. I'm not going to. I'm not going to deal with it now. But um, sorry. There are all these withdrawals. Sorry if I can find this. And then I want to read this one line. Um, early on, when Caesar's dealing with other people, um, his lieutenant, Canidius, leaves him. When, when Minas goes to Pompey, when all the men are on board that ship and says, do you want to be ruler of the world? Twice. Pompey says no. When Pompey says no the second time, as an aside, Mina says, I will leave him. Gone. You know, I think, if you read the play, that for me it's one of the most heartbreaking moments of the When Anthony goes into battle with Cleopatra and everybody says, don't do that with her, you don't want her going into battle with you, and he says he will and he's going to fight by sea, which he shouldn't do, and he's defeated. He comes back outraged at Cleopatra because she turned tail and ran when it came time to fighting an actual battle, she turned. He followed her and is outraged, and it's at that point that you know, Barbara says, I must find a way to leave him. And you know that he's been one of the most loyal men in the whole of the play. In the next battle, he actually leaves Anthony. So, Canidius, Minus, Enobarbus. Each of them belonging to an, another leader leaves that leader. So we're watching men leave. There are these withdrawals taking place. The night before the last battle, if you remember, Anthony loses the first battle. He wins the second one, surprisingly. And they're having a party, but off stage, under the stairwell, oboes are playing. And the soldiers are going, what do you hear? What do you hear? Should I get it? I'm going to leave it. Um, they're they're listening and they hear the oboes playing and one of the soldiers says, what is it? The other soldier said, it's Anthony's God. He's leaving him. That's the God Hercules. It's the God that Anthony's been, the, the, the strong God. So um, in the next battle, when they set off to battle, Anthony asks for Enobarbus and his soldier says he's not here. Anthony's shocked. He says, where is he? And the guy said, he left. Anthony's heartbroken absolutely heartbroken, he says to the soldier, gather all my stuff and take it to him and tell him, say, I hope I never give you cause again to be so sad. You know, Barbus gets the gift and he's crushed. And it, ironically, it's, um, it's during that battle, this is stunning what he's doing, it's during that battle that Anthony defeats Caesar. 
So Enobarbus went to the other side with Caesar because he thought Anthony would lose. He's with Caesar now and Anthony wins. Now imagine how that's got to intensify his sense of betrayal. In the next scene, he's going to go to a ditch. He's not going to commit suicide. He will die from a broken heart. So, so there are all these withdrawals taking place in this Roman world. I'm not going to get to the end yet. What's going on? What's going on in Rome? Is, is there something going on that a Roman poet, a Roman historian, would never see? But that Shakespeare, as a Catholic, would or could. Okay? Now, one, I'm just going to read one thing, and probably for the first time in four years, we're going to get out, out on earlier on time. Where are you? I'm good. Well, I've, I've, been, I've been putting the play together, Linda. But right now, I want you to go to Act 2, Scene 2. This is during the time when all the world leaders... Okay, now, this is, real, this is like what? Franklin Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin. Okay? I'm not, I'm not kidding. That's a world war. There's the three... And, and we know that what happened in those meetings help determine the outcome of the Second World War. Or it could be Gor Gorbachev and Reagan and we can pull in a third in that one, I don't know. Um, all the world leaders are here to meet, to make up this truce because they know if they don't, Pompey's going to go to war with Lepidus and um, Caesar. We don't know, I mean, Anthony has come back from Cleopatra. But Eunobarbus is really clear. And Eunobarbus is right that he won't leave Cleopatra goes back. So I just want to read a couple of passages to raise some questions here. Two of them. When these men have come together to patch up their differences, one of the soldiers, Agrippa, who is Caesar's main lieutenant, asks Enobarbus, who is Anthony's main lieutenant. Uh, this is about line 190, Act 2, Scene 2. Tell me about this woman, Cleopatra, because all these soldiers, I mean, you can, these are these men hearing all these things about this extraordinarily beautiful woman. And Edomarbus describes her. He says, I will tell you. And by the way, the, the passage that we have here, T.S. Eliot takes, not verbatim, but almost verbatim in his poem, The Wasteland. This burnished throne with this beautiful woman. It's, it's in the wasteland, and I, I think I've told you before, the wasteland marks, it's the beginning of the modern world. It's a poet acknowledging the wasteland, that the modern city is a spiritual desolate, it's a place of death. And he, he takes from this passage. You know, Barbara says, I will tell you, the barge she sat in like a burnished throne, burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sail. By, by the way, remember Othello, um, root of speech. Could a common soldier describe a scene like this, like Ian Barbus does? Or once again, is Shakespeare putting words in the mouth of a common man to describe something that a man could never get to himself? That there's something there, but so far beyond the words that a man could come to that only the poet could. Okay, this is Enobarbus describing Cleopatra. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, 
which to the tune of flutes kept stroke and made the water which they beat to follow faster, as amorous of their strokes. For her own person it beggared all description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold of tissue, over picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature, that there's something in nature making us aware that there's something more there. On each side her stood pretty dimpled boys, like smiling cupids with diverse colored fans, whose wind did seem to glow the delicate cheeks which they did cool, and what they did, what they undid, did. So while they're, the boys, these pretty boys, are fanning to cool the cheeks, we've got this sense of this um, amorous sentiment is taking over, that it, it's like exciting lovemaking, you know, that something more is going on here. Agrippa, oh, rare for Anthony. Her gentlewoman, like the Nereids, the nymphs of the sea, so many mermaids tended her in the eyes and made their bends adorings. At the helm a seeming mermaid steers, the silken tackle swell with touches of those flower-soft hands. That yearly frame the office, from the barge a strange invisible perfume hits the sense of the adjacent wharves. The city casts her people out upon her. <clears throat> it empties itself. The city empties itself for her. It's gone. It's absent now. The city cast her people out upon her, and Anthony enthroned it in the marketplace did sit alone, whistling to the air, which but for vacancy had gone to gaze on Cleopatra so and made a gap in nature. It's just one more apophatic incident. I mean, something's going on here that Shakespeare's making us aware involves what would absences. You, like to send? you can ask me to send an email or send a text message. <laughs> I wish I had a picture of this because if I had the picture, it would be like this. <laughs> you did it. No, you did it. I know. I know. I know. I know. Oh, God. Here, turn, turn, um, go back to the beginning now for a second. I can't even Beginning of what? The, the play. Act one, scene one. Act one, scene one. Would you two behave just for a minute? We're trying to figure out what's going on. We have magical powers. Oh, wow. Scary. Making this play real. This is apathetic. Yes. <laughs> Here, quickly, just to remember that the play opened. Don't, ever, don't forget this. The play opened with Anthony and Cleopatra entering stage. So this is a stage entrance. Cleopatra says, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. Where are you? Axine, act, no. act, act one, scene one, the very opening. Act one, oh, scene one. Not the very, around well, the very after a little bit. Yeah. <coughs> this is with their straight stage entrance. Anthony and Cleopatra make their stage entrance. She says, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. Okay. There's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. Whatever I say will, will be poor in comparison with what I really want to say. He won't be able to find the words. She says, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. There's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. I'll set a born how far to be loved. She'll set a limit. Then thou must needs find out new heaven, new earth. That's from Revelation, New Testament, a new heaven and earth. What he's saying is, there's no way for me to express the love I feel for you except with a new heaven, new earth. This is in the context of Rome. Now just think about the importance of those words. Because for Rome, there is nothing more. 
and Anthony's going to express what I feel would require a new heaven, new earth. That's Christian. That's out of the New Testament. And I asked the question last time, what was said just before they came on stage? I think everybody's clear now, right? What was said? Yeah, or no, she's or, no. no. I love you. I, I love, love you. you. I love you. He says to Cleopatra, I love you. And the question that I ask is, why did Shakespeare leave that absent? Why off stage? Because if there is a God and a new heaven and earth is coming, there are no words to express that love. It, it will only be expressible in new heaven, new earth. So right at the beginning, Shakespeare's introducing the scene with an apophatic element. Is that clear? Is that clear? No? No. No. <laughs> Anybody want to help? She, he's just said to her, I love you. She says, how much? He says, there aren't words to tell you. To tell you would require a new heaven and a new earth. Do the Romans know that a new heaven and new earth is coming? That's what those, that would be Christ. That's Revelation, straight out of Revelation. No, they don't. So here in the opening scenes, Shakespeare's using a language that makes us aware that something more is present, and we're only knowing it by its absence. Okay? That means he's asking us to learn to see by what's not there. Okay, one last thing, and then we'll close. When we get to Egypt, so we know that Rome is a place of contracts and strategies. Um, Act 1, scene 2, Charmian asks for the, um, the soothsayer to um, give their fortune, their futures. Act 1, scene 2, a few lines down, the soothsayer says, uh, <clears throat> she, she says, is this the man? It is, sir, that you know things. Soothsayer says, in nature's infinite book of secrecy, a little can I read. He's like Helena with her third eye. He can see into the secrets of things in nature. And notice that the reference point here is nature. That is, he reels what's, he's not in his head, he reads what's real. So she says, um, pray then for see me one. Now, if you've read the play, you should be astounded by this. Soothsayer says to Charmian, you shall be yet far fairer than you are. Now, Sheila, you've all read the play, right? Mm -hmm. You know that Charmian and Iris are going to die at the end. Mm -hmm. One is going to die from a broken heart. The other is going to die from putting the asp on. Their love of Cleopatra is so great, they're going to die. So what the soothsayer is saying, even though nobody knows it right now, is they're going to be far more beautiful at the end than they are now because of whatever they do. If you're at the beginning of the play, you won't know it. Right here, it just says, you shall be far fairer than you are. So we have to ask, what does that mean when we look at her at the end? He says to the other, you shall be more beloving than beloved. She will love somebody. This is like Helena. She will love another more than she wants to be loved herself, to be loved. Will that turn out to be true at the end? Number three you shall outlive the lady whom you serve. Will that be true? Four, you have seen and proved a fair former fortune than that which is to approach. You're going to lose what you have. 
Those are his four fortunes, and they're all going to come true. So in Rome, we've got men who live with strategies, contracts. They all fail. We're in Venice, in Merchant of Venice. We're in a male transactional world. Um, and, and we know that it's going to keep succeeding. Caesar's not going to fail, so it's a rising action. In Egypt, um, something else is happening that involves the immediate pleasures of the body. Not the giving, not the sacrificing of the body for war, but a pleasure in itself. And we also see that associated with Egypt is this power of vision that the soothsayer, and he says, I can see it with no efficacy. He can do nothing about it. So the fact that he sees it um, says something. He's powerless to do anything about it. If Rome's given to power, here we see a power of vision that's completely dissociated from any use of power that it would give him. He just sees. So we're watching two different regimes, um, world powers, and a man and a woman struggling in this love that they come to and what happens to them in the midst of these, you know, these, these world powers struggling against themselves. So the question next week is, how do we understand all these withdrawals, these men leaving their commanders, you know, Barbas particularly, Anthony's God leaving him, and what happens to Anthony and Cleopatra themselves? They're going to take their lives. How do we, is, do we understand that what they're doing is just Roman, just the way the Romans would look at it, or is there something else going on? Major, major questions. Okay. So read the ending really, it's a beautiful, beautiful play. It's stunning. It's a tragedy. But it's a stunning play. Any questions before we stop? What's this about the liver on fire? Sorry? What page? What? She's, she's, she's responding to the soothsayer. It was right where we were. Yeah. Oh. Wrinkles forbid. Well, I, hey, I wish that were true. Um, you shall be. He, she's she's countering him. Go ahead. Can you explain it, Sue? Can you answer? Charming, charming. I mean, that's the way I read rather it. heat my liver. Yeah, because with the soothsayers telling her saying you will be more beloved than beloved. I'd rather heat my liver with drinking. So she's saying, I don't like what you're telling me. Yeah, yeah, right. But she does that right. with several different. Right. I think. Yeah. No. No. That's saying. it. Yeah. That's a good line. <laughs> that is, she's putting this off. She's just blowing. She's dismissing it and saying, "I'd rather, I'd rather get drunk and enjoy myself than." Um, she doesn't want to be loving more than she is loved. No, she wants to be, she wants loved. To be loved. Yeah. There's a lot going on between the sexes here. I mean, Shakespeare's doing a wonderful job, um, and and I just, I mean, one of the questions I've already put it out is, we've got this extraordinary man, this extraordinary woman. How do we look at them? How are we supposed to look at them at the end in the way that, in what they do? Let me just leave it that way as men and women.